The title of today's talk is To Be With Change. That is, paraphrasing Shakespeare, to be with change or not to be, basically. Uh, necessarily so. Life is steeped in change, in instability. And at least we are willing to be present with it, to participate in it. We are simply not showing up for life. So that's, I try to develop that theme, and I'll do that at two levels in succession. First, at the individual level, how we individuals deal with change, and secondly, at the collective, public level, how we, as a community, deal with change. Individually, our prevailing response to the relentless instability of things is to resist it by seeking unchangeability, persistence, permanence. And of course, uh, a motif underneath all this, and the foundations of this resistance to change, is resisting the prospects of getting old, of our own physical and mental decay. Yeah, decay and deterioration, sure. So very often as we see change around us, illness around us, it, or any kind of change, even the computer breaking down, oh yes, it reflects on me breaking down. That's why it's so difficult to bear it. The Buddha often called our attention to this tendency to resist to impermanence, instability, or as it's called in Pali, anicca. And he said this resistance is in vain, because anicca is an unscapable feature of our existence. And so, if we're going to resist Anicca, we must pretend that things are different from what they are. This is ridiculous, but we keep doing it. How do we do it? Well, I, I thought I'd look into some of the more obvious strategies in my mind anyway, which is ignoring, imitating, and impersonating. Let me look at each one in turn. 
starting with ignoring. I used to teach, as I mentioned yesterday, at C.W. Bush College in Long Island. And a few, some time ago, can't remember how long ago, I attended a dinner <coughs> there on, on the occasion of a dinner, sorry, a dinner on the occasion of the retirement of a colleague, a former colleague of mine who was being honored in that dinner. Afterwards, he sent me a very kind personal note, and he said, I quote, Dear Jose, etc., etc., I hope that I can be remained as unchanged as you seem to be after so many retirement years. Because we hadn't seen each other for, say, 10 years or more. Unchanged. Holy mackerel. <laughs> I, I, I felt that I had, and I have, changed enormously, both inside and outwardly, you know. I really look much older than I did before. I forget things. It's terrifying sometimes. But my friend could not, understandably perhaps, allow himself to acknowledge that. Because he was seeing himself through me. I had retired, so he was going to retire. If I had changed, he was going to change. No, that's not possible. So this is one little example of ignoring him. So there are thousands, millions of that. Imitating. When denial does not work, when ignoring or denying doesn't work, an easy alternative is to disguise ourselves under the cover of change that's not for real. The French put it beautifully, if you know this French proverb. I'll try it in French first. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. That is, the more it changes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And there's good reason for that to be a very much used proverb, because you can see that all over the place. We imitate change in so many ways, just, just to review a few areas. Say we're in a relationship that ain't working. Rather than checking out what's not working, what's working, hmm, we simply and abruptly, we change partners. We switch to another relationship. And of course, we end up replicating in the other relationship what was happening in the early ones. Of course, we haven't changed anything, only the players in the game, that's all. Say we identify ourselves with a political ideology or a religious doctrine. We get disenchanted. 
What do we do? We immediately shift our allegiance to another ideology, another doctrine, another teacher, another political leader, whatever, end up shifting to another unexamined belief system. We haven't checked what is it that wasn't working in the first place within ourselves. We are unhappy where we live. Simple solution, we relocate. Does that change anything? Not a bit, if that's all we, what we do. Even if we go to the other end of the world. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Now, this Imitation can only work with the help of impersonation. That is, if we contrive ourselves as an entity separate from the flow of life, from the flow of things. We think that everything around us is wrong, and we are right, of course. So we just go to another surrounding and keep doing it. This entity that impersonates us, it's, it's really something we've conjured up. Call it an I, a me, an ego. You know, yesterday we were talking about the, the methods that we use through dependent arising to generate the ego. But it, it's got no reality. In olden times, you know, we did contrive the image of having a little homunculus, do you know the word? Homunculus, a little person, persona. I, often in our head. Although, by the way, some, I remember studying uh, biology, um, and, and some people on using microscopes thought they saw a little homunculus in the sperm. <laughs> yeah, they looked at the sperm for, oh yes, that's homunculus, you see. But nobody ever saw an homunculus, for real anyway. And yet, whether we believed in that concretely or metaphorically, we act as if there is such a persona in ourselves unaffected by change. As long as we keep puffed it up. We were saying yesterday. And puffed up, we keep it through appropriation, grasping things, and conflict.
appropriation because property becomes begets the proprietor because ownership begets the owner because mine begets the me and conflict and I'm sure we all have felt our ego getting cocky getting aggrandized by conflict in sum we tend to deal with the uncontrollable change engulfing us both with a relentless turmoil of impermanence because nothing is permanent and, and with the largest earthquakes, tsunamis of life. By seemingly going along with it, but remaining deeply entrenched in the fictional fortress of I, me, mine. Problem, of course, is that this entrenchment, instead of reducing our suffering, ends up creating more suffering. Because we can see the disparity between the reality, what we want, and what it is. The expectations, and what actually happens. To break away from this entrenchment, we need to find a different way of relating with change. How do we do that? In order to learn to be present with change, we have to shed our conditioning and retrain ourselves, our minds. Or, or even untrain our minds. That's a pretty good beginning. Untrain our minds, shedding our conditioning. We were talking about that yesterday, of course. And the prime tool for, for that retraining, retooling, is the meditation practice. Meditation, as I've been saying, invites us to be fully aware of the experience of change. No subterfuges allowed. We we need to acknowledge, if we're really looking at things as they are, which is uh, what we try to do in meditation, we need to acknowledge things appear, persist for however long they do, and disappear. Arise, persist, and dismantle. Everything in the world of the real. Some things may last longer, others shorter, that's all. And as we sit and practice, we notice not only the pervasiveness of impermanence, but also the pervasiveness of our resistance to it.
I was earlier analyzing the ways in which we resist change. But in the practice, we don't analyze it. We feel it firsthand. We can feel it in our bones. It's very important to have that acknowledgement. There's change, and there is at least parts of me which are resisting. Because then, as we realize it firsthand, we create an opportunity to learn to change things, to change our relationship to change. Let me try to get even more concrete. Say I feel a stab of pain in my back. Practice invites me to be fully present with it. I said, it's, it's bound to fluctuate. In fact, a stab is just that, but whatever, whatever kind of pain is, it'll appear, increase, maybe increase more, maybe increase more, and eventually come down. May not happen uh, as, we, as, soon as, as early as we'd like to, but uh, it happens. And also, pains very often start drifting. In our mind, we solidify it. In reality, the pain not only changes in intensity, but also in location very often. And for heaven's sake, let's not contribute to the solidity of the pain by creating this persona, me the victim of the pain. And all of this, of course, we're talking about pain. I'm not denying the possibility that sometimes medical attention is necessary. Sure, I mean, I mean I don't, don't deny that. But while you're sitting, while you're not attending to it medically, just learn how to relate with it in a wise and wholesome way. And you'll worry about going to the doctor next time. I mean, when you get home, or tomorrow, or Monday, anyway, not doctors on weekends. But let go of the sense of being the martyr. So, as I'm talking about pain, and I can be, of course, also, I used an example of physical pain, emotional pain. It's much the same way. And emotional pain very often has its counterpart on the, in the body. And much of what I've said about pain, emotional or physical, can be said about the opposite end of the spectrum, the sensation of happiness and bliss, which, which does visit us, too, during practice. In that case, 
the wife's response is, surely to be with it, that may be easy enough, but also not to cling to it, not to demand that it stay, not to do all kinds of, of things, strategies, see if he can stay a little longer. No. Invite it in, invite it out whenever it's ready to go. Just enjoy it while it lasts. Don't let the ego turn the fluctuations of sensations and emotions into an opportunity to take over your life. Simply, if the, the ego part of you, the little homunculus, if you wish, <laughs> wants to use these circumstances, well, you know, watch uh, him, her do it, and not buy into its tricks, that's all. Not fall for it. Can we do it? Yes, we can. Yes, indeed, we can. I wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't the possibility. If I didn't have my first-hand experience on that, too. So much then for change at the individual level. Let me now shift to the collective. Because this individual saga of coming to terms with change has its counterpart at the collective level. Under ordinary circumstances, public consciousness, much like individual consciousness, is apprehensive about change. True, there are circumstances under which change or even revolution becomes imperative, but they don't come that frequently. For us, it took eight years of failed leadership to ch turn change into an irresistible slogan for Obama. Even McCain occasionally talked about change. The course of history is indeed the course of change, with countless small bl blips and numerous tsunamis like the birth and disintegration of major empires. And yet, whenever in doubt, public opinion tends to resist change and to buy, to acquiesce, to defer to the rule of the already entrenched elite, elites. You know, to me, it's amazing that the conservative way of looking at things politically had such a wide popularity when in fact that conservative way of looking 
is there to keep the entrenched elites in power and keep us out of power. And yet, we, we go for that because uh, we fear change more than anything else in most circumstances. Of course, once a revolution takes over, like say the French Revolution or whatever, well, change, everything is in change. There's nothing solid to hold on to. But soon enough, something else, and there comes even Napoleon, you know, taking over. <coughs> Much as in the case of individuals, as I reviewed in the first half of the talk, the collective resistance to change employs the strategies of ignoring, imitating, and impersonating. Again, I'll illustrate with, with a a few examples, I'm not going to cover this whole territory. For me, a highlight in that strategy of ignoring is a paper published a few decades ago, but it had a great impact on, on opinion. A paper was by an American with a Japanese named Francis Fukuyama. It was an article, then it became a book, and it was entitled The End of History. Everybody loved it. I mean, everybody who spoke, I mean, most people didn't care about it, but there was a chorus of approval. In fact, I, I remember the following in his footsteps uh, the Chancellor of Stony Brook came to my college to give a talk, invited by the person who wrote me the letter, by the way, about no change, huh? interesting, <laughs> gave a talk about the end of science. I mean, we know everything already. Now we have details to, you know, details in history to adjust, details in science to adjust, but there's no more significant change to be had. And, and uh, for Fukuyama, the peak of history was the political system in the U.S. Political and economic system in the U.S. Give us a break. <laughs> So, the thinking going along those lines, publicly. More plausible and, and more insidious, of course, is the strategy of imitating reality by replacing it with a, an unchanging fiction. Well, in a way, Fukuyama was doing that, of course. The plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more things stay the same. 
the public arena is awash with illustration of that. And, um, you know, just, just to make it more concrete, let me pick one example. It's from a, a New York Times article of a month ago. And it says, it's talking about the, the Israeli bombardment of Gaza, which, uh, regardless of the suffering of everybody in Gaza, was, a, was inevitably a PR fiasco for Israel. So it says that after this PR fiasco, the Israeli authorities had decided to rebrand themselves, that is, to rebrand Israel. And to this end, the foreign ministry created a rebranding team, a department, to rebrand Israel. And charged with keeping the foreign press away from reporting on conflicts in general, in Israel and around Israel, and instead offering a picture of Israel as a country, I quote, with an attractive personality. Yeah. You know, fair enough, but this is what, what we do with products in the market, you know, it's marketing Israel, because the, the campaign around Gaza was very damaging to its image. There was no intent to change the policy, you see. This is so incredible. Only to replace the image. That's what the French proverb refers to. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. And of course, again, as in the individual case and the public case is whole imitation works because we have created the collective as a separate entity. Call it the state of Israel, for instance. Call it this nation, whatever. Even call it a corporation. And, and to impersonate this collective, of course, we use we back it by a symbol like the flag or a logo that stands for this particular entity. In, in older times, and, and even in Britain today, we all know, but in a milder form, the impersonation was done by or is done in Britain by the Queen, and in older times by kings and queens. More queens, not kings, more kings and queens. <laughs> King Louis XIV of France put it very plainly and blunt, plainly and bluntly. He said, l'état c'est moi. The state is me. You know, me, it's not just moi, it's moi. 
there's an enhancing of the collective and enhancing of the me. And yes, there is a merging of the collective and individual ego there. I mean, very clear, and we do that all the time. All the way from the top of the ladder of power, all the way down to us. Wherever there's a war, a, a war both the collective ego and the individual egos get puffed up. I remember that uh, um, both Raquel and me experienced that uh, with the Falkland War. Uh, pardon me, Malvinas War. I shouldn't have said that. I'm on the Argentinian side, and, uh, and Falkland is a no-no word. There was a war, as some of you may remember, for these little islands lost uh, somewhere between Argentina and Margaret Thatcher's Britain, not that long ago. And, uh, and by the way, um, Margaret Thatcher got greatly enhanced by that war, which was, uh, I, I consider, you may disagree, a great loss for Britain, so it's as if Britain lost the war. And on the other hand, the Argentinian military got put down by the war because they failed, they lost it. And uh, Argentina benefited greatly from that because there was a, a civilian government ever since. <laughs> so anyway, so, in fact, conflict and things like that enhance the power of elites. No, no wonder our leaders are so keen in getting us into wars. Behind the scenes of everything I'm saying, of course, you might uh, perceive uh, the theme of Obama, right? I mean, where does the question comes up? Where does he fit in all of that? Uh, I don't know. It's too early to say. Of course, change was his slogan. And in fact, he validated it by saying, change we can believe in. That was a complete sort of statement. But was it real change, changement, as the French would say, <laughs> or was it plus a change, plus c'est la même chose? I don't know, and I suspect Barack doesn't either, you know. I mean, this is a fluid situation with some attempts to solidify it around some things. But uh, we don't know. In the end, real change cannot happen from top to bottom. Real change 
only happened when we too are willing to implement it. It is said, this is a story from FDR's uh, presidency, it is said that shortly after his inauguration, you know, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? Shortly after his inauguration in 1932, members of the labor movement went to him demanding radical change. And FDR is said to have responded. This is not documented, but it's like a, a, a gossip, a good gossip, I mean. He said, I agree with you. I want to do it. Now, make me do it. So, maybe the Obama administration is in the same place. Maybe not. There are indications that it's receptive to our input. So, really, the outcome is very much up to us collectively. How do we weigh in in the running of public life? How do we participate in change? Or at least, how do we stop resisting change? So, this is the part of my talk where I tried to see the way forward. How are we present with change? If we're to be truly present, then consolidation of our, of our collective ego around a fixed entity, like nationality, like ideology, like religious doctrine, whatever, becomes not only superfluous, but also, in the end, counterproductive. No matter how tempted we might be to do that. We need to participate in public life, oh yes. But we need to do that guided by wisdom, not by allegiances. And I know what I'm talking about, because as a young person, I was very much guided by allegiances. Right or wrong, that's, that's not the issue. There were allegiances. We need to c come in touch with the collective body politic much as we do with the individual body-mind in meditation. Exploring all aspects as a resonate within us, neither clinging nor rejecting outright any aspect, but simply selecting under the light of wisdom what's appropriate at the moment and what's not. And yes, making sure that we have at least some input from those 
who think different from us, who have different allegiances, and who surely can teach us. Coming from Latin America, in this historical time, I feel upbeat about change. I don't know what you've noticed, but there's an unprecedented sort of revolutionary bustle emerging from Latin America. For me, the, the prime example is Bolivia. You know, 500 years of colonial rule or semi-colonial rule, where the Indians were used, yes, but kept down, totally powerless. And certainly, one of them is a president. And not, not just because he looks Indian, but because he is deeply connected with the indigenous movement. So, this is an example that tells us that, that organic collective change is possible. We need to find ways of contributing to guide it wisely. That's, that's all we can do, of course. In closing, I'd like to share with you a poem from Alice Walker. Um, this is something that she composed in 2018, not, not directed to Obama, but in honor of his inauguration. And here it is. It's called The World Has Changed. The world has changed. Wake up and smell the possibility. The world has changed. It did not change without your prayers, without your faith, without your determination to believe in liberation and kindness, without your dancing through the years that had no beat. The world has changed. It did not change without your numbers, your fierce love of self and cosmos. It did not change without your strength. The world has changed. Wake up. Give yourself the gift of a new day. The world has changed. This does not mean you were never hurt. The world has changed. Rise. Yes, and shine. Resist the siren call of disbelief. The world has changed. Don't let yourself remain asleep to it.
Thank you, sister. <laughs> Upbeat? Sure. Of course. But basically an invitation to smell what's possible. Open up to a vision of what's possible. And allow yourselves to be with change. Not to control it, just to be with it. And yes, to be this change or not to be. So, a few moments. Silence. If our st stomach can wait, I hope it can. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.